Did you know that over 60,000 new tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day? That's a new track every 1.4 seconds, and that's just on one platform. With so much music now available, it's more important than ever to stand out from the crowd. So it's not surprising that more artists are starting to use less conventional sonic textures in their music, like field recordings. Perhaps you've always wanted to infuse the sounds of nature or your favourite city into your own tracks, but not having the right gear or knowledge might have held you back. Well, if that's the case, you're going to love the brand new guide I just created, teaching you how to start field recording with just a smartphone. And it's all yours for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level. So everyone stick to your guns. I've always been a drop in the ocean. I've always been a drop in the ocean. I've still managed to attract working with some of my heroes who are as follows, you know, Tony Visconti, Yoko Ono, Sean Ono Lennon, Jarvis Cocker, Richard Norris. I've never had traditional distribution. I've never had traditional press. In fact, I'm mostly told that, you know, I'm it's too much. I'm hard to position. I can't do this. I can't do that, you know. I've worked with Nico Mooley. I've worked with the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. You know, I've worked with some incredible and exceptional people through being that drop in the ocean. So it doesn't matter. You can be a drop in the ocean and you can still be a diamond. Hello and welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. My name's Isabel and over the last decade, my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million Spotify streams. I also have a PhD in sonic arts, but I wasn't always this confident with music tech. In fact, I still hear those self-doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female-identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Now, before we begin, and this week's episode is amazing, by the way, I just want to make sure that you know about my free resource sharing 10 free tools to start recording your music right now. Now, you see, I know it can feel like you'll need to raise a small fortune to afford enough gear to record your music, but it's actually not true, or at least There is a lot of expensive stuff that you could buy, but there's also some excellent tools you can grab for free. So don't let a lack of recording tools stop you from creating your own music. Just head to femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. That's femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel to download my 10 free tools PDF right now. Now, I feel like I need to just take a deep breath here, dear listener, because this is episode 30 of the podcast. That feels pretty amazing. Like there's 30 episodes for you to go and explore right now. 
It's also the beginning of June as this episode goes out live, which means that the podcast has been going out every single week, nearly, for a full six months. And last week, I told you this episode would be all about why I'm not going to be releasing another album, and it was. But then I managed to get Bishy to come on the podcast, and so I had to drop everything and just make it work. Not least because she has a fab event coming up next week, which you're going to want to hear about. I seriously dare you to listen to today's episode and not be totally inspired by everything Vishy has done, the wonderful insights she shares and the incredible ethos she embraces in all of her work. Inside, she shares her upbringing in London as a child of Indian immigrant parents, the rich musical experiences she was exposed to at home, the LGBT spaces she flourished in during her teenage years, and all the incredible things she's gone on to do throughout her 20s and 30s too. As you'll hear, this lady has kept peddling throughout her whole life in order to keep making music, confirming that a creative career is for the long haul, not just that 15 minutes of fame. She also candidly shares the challenges she's faced as a woman of colour in the industry, especially after hitting 30, and how her fledgling years spent in the London's LGBT community helped instil a sense of artistry and pride in her identity and her physicality too. Bishy has released music under her own label, Griffin Records, since 2007, and in 2018 she founded WITCH, which stands for Women in Technology Creative Industries Hub. Keep listening for all the details of the fab WITCH Festival that's taking place from June the 9th to the 11th, but if you're already sold, grab your ticket at the link in the show notes. Now, let's get into this week's episode with Bishy because you are going to love everything this trailblazing lady has to say. Welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. It's so nice to have you here today. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on. Yeah, I'm really glad that we could do it and and have the episode go live um, in the week just before the Witch Festival. Am I saying that right, Bishy? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love the name. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's very cool. So just before that festival is going live. And so anyone that's listening in and I think Girls Twiddling Knobs listeners are going to really love what you've got planned. Um, maybe just before we start going into all of the different things that we we want to chat about, you could just tell us a bit about the festival in case anyone's listening and be like, oh my God, where's my ticket? Sure. So Witch Digital is an online festival over Zoom from the 9th to the 11th of June 2021. And we have five new commissions planned from Helena Rice, Hinako Amori, Nali, Myself with uh, a VR company that I'm working with called Volta and Lula XYZ. And each evening is headlined by um, an intimate panel um, headed by a star guest. So our star panelists are Animatronic on the 9th, Nimone on the 10th and Laurie Anderson on the 11th. And Laurie Anderson is going to be in conversation with myself, Hannah Peel and Kayla Painter. Animatronic is going to be in conversation with Anil Sebastian and Portrait XO. And Nimone is going to be in conversation with Hannah Holland and Samantha Togney. 
And the full event details are all up on the Witch social media, which hopefully that's all going to go out with this podcast. Yes, all the links will be Great. with the show notes. Yeah, totally. Um, well done, by the way, for remembering all of those names. <laughs> <laughs> you did very well. <laughs> I nearly forgot someone and I was like, oh, come on. Like I, I was running late for this interview because we were having a production meeting. So it's like yes. I have to remember everything, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, no, you did very well. Um, and it sounds incredible. And I've got my ticket and I'm very excited and I can't wait. Thank so, you. So, yeah. So thank you for just kind of giving us the headlines. We'll definitely get more into which and why you started it and what it's all about later. Um, but anyone that's listening, the link is in the show notes to go and check out um, and get tickets. Um so let's just kick off, Bishy, with uh, maybe in your words, your own words, can you describe um, what you do, what you're about for for the listeners? Sure. Well, I am a vocalist, composer, multi-instrumentalist, producer. Um, I'm the founder of Witch. I've been uh, releasing music on my own label, Griffin Records, for the past 14 years and I've been a professional musician for the past 23 years. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. And does it feel bonkers saying 23 years? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think this year I've been doing a lot of reflecting over Christ. That's, you know, I've been a professional musician for the majority of my life. And that in itself is an achievement that yeah. I'm really proud of. And the fact that I've able to just I've just been myself without anyone meddling and to feel really grateful for the opportunity and to just feel incredibly positive about the power of being creative and applying myself. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, that's, that's a really wonderful thing to look back on your life and know that you did apply yourself, that you, you had ideas, but then you actually saw them come to pass as it were or you know come to fruition absolutely and I've been reflecting on this a lot and you know like in amongst my kind of friendship circles and my collaborators and you never really know whose path you're going to cross at what point and the impact that you're potentially going to make on each other and where relationships and opportunities are going to spring up and so that's why you have to keep staying creative you have to keep making work And you have to keep going because you never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think that um, that's something that's really, really good to know, especially right from the beginning. But even when you're in the middle of your career or what might feel like the end of your career, wherever you're at, to know that it's not just a kind of smooth trajectory and then you make it, that it's it's a lifelong vocation. It's a calling almost. And it will have many peaks and troughs. Absolutely. And I think the big pressure with all women is there's a very cookie cutter narrative that we're all sold as little girls in terms of how our lives are going to turn out and nothing in my life has synced up to that you know and I'm not a destructive person I I haven't had massive fallouts I haven't had like massive boo-boos that have gone on in my life and nothing in my life has synced up to that cookie cutter narrative And it can often leave people feeling very bereft and very frustrated and very low. But I think that I've had a lot of opportunity to really learn about what I'm good at and also learn about what I'm not good at and learn about relationships and, you know, creative relationships where 
we can be really good for each other and try and assess maybe why we're good for each other. Yeah. So do you feel like collaboration has been a massive tool for you in your career then? I'm very much a solo artist, but I think one of my talents is that I'm able to be myself in whatever situation I'm handed. And when I talk about collaboration, it's really the dialogue and it's about two people's strong points coming together and impacting each other. So that's how I see collaboration. But yeah, I think one of my talents is to just be myself in whatever situation I'm landed in and also just to roll with the punches. Yeah. Yeah. So to be able to be flexible and respond and make make something, even if things don't work out exactly how you'd planned it to. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's what the pandemic should have brought to all of us as musicians and producers and you know, things are going to, things are going to hit us and it's not what happens to us, but it's what we do with it. Yeah, totally. Totally. And again, that comes back to that whole kind of, how do you make your career unfold over a lifetime rather than just have a very rigid plan? And then if that doesn't work out, then it's over. Yeah. And yeah, I think there's some, I mean, it's a lesson I think we're always learning as artists and I don't think it matters how big you get or how many people are in your team or anything like that. You're always having to almost kind of reinvent yourself, aren't you? Absolutely. In a funny way. Absolutely. And I think it's even more so for women and for trans and non-binary people because, you know, the everything is so against you, you know, the, you know, like the tide, um, the the opportunities um how you're able to develop um you know you know like the percentages of opportunities are so against you that you just have to invent yourself as you go along and actually like that's what most interesting careers are it's it's just and 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 interesting people and interesting lives is is that they keep finding tools to create and to invent and then to reinvent and they do it over and over again yeah, totally. I, I totally agree. And I think that that's something I'll look back on my life, you know, thinking about <laughs> reflecting on the years that have passed. That's something that I'll be really grateful for, that I had the opportunity and the inclination to develop that creative muscle, because it's not just seen me through music and, you know, establishing a, an artistic career, but everything in my life, relationships, my health, um, understanding my identity just as a human, um, you know, the, the way that the world has changed around me. I think it's a really important vital skill that we, that you are very fortunate and privileged if you happen to be encouraged to develop it. Absolutely. But it's, it's a game changer, you know, like you say, for life, not just as an artist. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And I think we all need to remind ourselves and to remind each other that, it isn't, you know, like we're all like, I think all women are really haunted by a very specific life narrative. And, mm. you know, sometimes everything just syncs up beautifully, everything falls into place. But I don't think that's the case for the majority of lives. It's just not like that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So Bishi, can you just tell us what's this life narrative then that we're haunted by, do you think? Well, the life narrative is that basically you are hot for like from about the age of 15, <laughs> that yeah. from 15 to 30, you are at your hottest and your most creative. That's the time when you are going to be the most popular, you know, um, get some ridiculous 
university degree, meet your Prince Charming, manage to pay off your student debt and get onto the housing market, you know, be a multimillionaire, be the most famous singer, producer, model, actress. And that once you hit 30, you're basically useless, you know. Mm. And it's amazing how with all of this explosion of feminism within popular culture, that is the narrative. You know, people think that once you hit 30, it's over. And mm-hmm. I've, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of articles. I, I, I engage a lot with, with pop culture, actually. And these huge journalists and these big bloggers and, and people who are saying really bright things all prescribed to this and um and it's really worrying and and really damaging and especially now that people are really thinking about wokeness and inclusivity and they're thinking about gender and but when it comes to ageism they're totally fine to just discriminate which I think is really interesting Mm. you know yeah I I agree and I, I I think the other one is um is also about weight like I think that's one of the the um the ways that we discriminate that still hasn't really been you know properly examined and that people who will be very woke in lots of ways and would never you know ever say pub- anything publicly about somebody's race or somebody's gender even um that there is still a lot of discrimination like you say about age and weight for for a lot of women um and i i totally relate to what you're saying that for me actually growing up i never gave any fucks about getting married. I never even imagined myself having kids. I only ever imagined myself being an artist. Like even at the age of nine, I thought I'd become a painter. Now I'm not very good at painting, but <laughs> I quickly realised that I was better, better at music. But then, you know, as you go through your life, you know, I, I'm now 36 and most of my friends have kids. Most of my friends are married, actually. And um, and I've just had some very different experiences. And I do have some artist friends who have kids and are married. But um, it's, it's really fucking hard. <laughs> you know, it's really fucking hard for women. And I think there's this narrative of you can have it all, which is, you know, a kind of, I guess, like a first or second wave feminist narrative which I understand the premise behind it but at the same time then you you actually can't you know none of us can actually um and I think we all have to make choices and we all have to make decisions and especially in a society that has not caught up yet to the realities of all those things like saving up 10 grand to get uh, fucking married I don't want to do that I respect when people do but I don't want or need to do that I'd rather spend that 10 grand on releasing an album yeah yeah what well, you know? yeah yeah <laughs> I think it really depends on I think it really depends on the person I mean I know you know people in all kinds of different situations for all different kinds of reasons and like as I yeah. stressed earlier that we really are not in control of the kinds of people that we're going to cross paths with and we're not in in control of that. And so the reason that we need to keep applying ourselves is to sort of welcome things into our lives. And then there's yeah. and then there's the reality of making everything work. And I feel that if there was just a bit more honesty about the practicalities of everything, um, that would really ease off all of the emotional pressure that comes with mm-hmm. what you should be and how things should fall, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Well, let's maybe come back 
to young Bishy. Yeah. Because I'd love to know what was your path into music? Um, I'd also love to know. So I'd love to know growing up, you know, what did that look like? But I'd also love to know how how and when you realised that you were a producer, especially. Sure. So I was born and brought up in London. Uh, my parents were immigrants who came over from India in the 70s. Um, my mother, during the 70s, when I wasn't around, she helped to curate uh, the first ever Indian classical music festival at the South Bank. Wow. And she was also the presenter of that festival. And that ran for about 10 years. And she was also a presenter on the BBC World Service. So I grew up in this very artistic, very modest immigrant, but very artistic household. And I was very lucky as a child that these Indian classical musicians would stay in our house and they'd improvise all night, just the, just this extraordinary ability. And, you know, my mum also had little bits of recording equipment, so we'd make radio shows together as well. And they had a big vinyl turntable and they had various ABBA records and Beatles records and, and, and whatever. And so that's been really keyed into me. Another really influential thing is... I used to go backstage to all of these Indian classical music gigs and I really saw the artist camaraderie and I really, the idea that artists are united and artists stand together was really, really big for me. So I was very lucky. I um, was classically trained as a pianist and I was classically trained at, in Hindustani vocals um, to the point where my guru wanted to take me back to India to sort of turn me into some mad child protege and I'm really glad that, that didn't happen and yeah I was also a chorister at school so I was wow. very so I was very very lucky in that I had a lot of training and a lot of experience um but it was definitely not professionally encouraged um and then in my teens I started playing I did in bands so I was in my first band when I was 14 I played upstairs at the garage um, and I was discovered by my disco dad, my drag mother, you know, um, and he was called Matthew Glamour and he was in a band called Minty, who were a very famous queer performance art band that was founded by Lee Bowery. And um, I started to, he got me my first ever session work when I was 15. So I was in my first recording studio when I was 15. Um, I started hosting queer club nights at the Scala when I was 16 then wow. I started then I started DJing when I was 17 and I sort of started to get my first bits of press doing my first bits of sort of commercial modeling and stuff like that 17 18 so I was very very lucky that I got to start in London very young and mm -hmm. On school nights, you know, I was allowed to go to gigs. So there would be experimental gigs in East London. There'd be, you know, contemporary classical and experimental electronic gigs, kind of East London. And then Camden would be all the indie stuff. Soho, there'd be all of the gay discos and, you know, and, you know, like also big like rock music clubs. So, you know, glam rock was having a massive revival in like early aughts London and, just very much around bands and drag queens and performance artists. And I'm just incredibly lucky that I just grew up in London and, and had access to all of that. Yeah, no, it, that's that's another thing that I think is not talked about that much, that 
you know, if you if you'd had exactly the same beginnings but been brought up somewhere like Hull or somewhere like I don't know Coventry or wherever, um, totally different. But because you were in London, you had all this stuff going on. But I also am wondering, you know, looking back on Young Bishy um, and all this stuff happening. I mean, when you look back, what do you think? What what was what was going on like? Because it it just sounds like so much, so busy, so kind of hectic, so intense. Um, were you just like really excited by it? Were you ever overwhelmed? Did you ever feel out of your depth or did it just feel really right and really you? Well, it didn't feel hectic. It felt very exciting. But I was, you know, I sort of had this double life where I had my school life and I had my home life. And then I'd had this outer, this artistic life. And that's very, very common for second generation, you know, the children of immigrants, you're always code switching between your different personalities. So Mm -hmm. I was someone very specific at home. And then I had this outer life. And yeah, of course, I was very scared. I didn't, you know, it's through my, my psychologist friends who have allowed the space and have have informed me that being split in between cultures, not really knowing who you are, where you are, not really knowing, not really feeling British, but not really feeling Indian, not feel welcome in either society. This is a real thing that all children of immigrants go through. And yeah. I think the the reason that I launched into the world of music and performance art and DJing was a way of trying to heal all of that chaos. And I still think to a certain extent, it is there to kind of heal all of that chaos. But I look back and I think, oh my God, like what a badass. Like not only was I so young, but I'm still to this day, one of the only South Asian women in any space, in a recording studio, um, in a, you know, like in a queer space, DJing, you know, playing live, being a part of that experience. I'm one of the only South Asian women in my age group to have started then and to still be continuing now. So I kind of need to give myself that credit. Oh, you do. No, I mean, this is the thing. It's all the things you're describing and especially at the age that you were at, it's incredible. And, you know, sometimes when you look back on the things that you've done at that age and you think, how did, how did I do that? Like, <laughs> like some of the stuff that I've done, you know, when I was like even 12, 13, really, I, I was really fortunate in that when I was growing up, Glyndebourne Opera House started running a project which was putting on operas with state school kids in the local area. So my school was one of the schools they worked with and I got a lead part and it was it was massive. And I had a dressing room with the lights around the mirror. And I was like 13 years old. And um and it and at the same time was in the school musical, which my school, again, I was very fortunate, even though it was a state school, they really went for their musical, so it was a big deal. And I remember fainting in the bath because I was just so exhausted from doing all the rehearsals and these different things and doing the schoolwork, you know, and keeping up with all that stuff. And I look back on it now and I'm, I kind of really took it in my stride. Even the fact that I fainted, I was like, oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but that, all of those 
formative experiences really account to stuff. And, you know, I was from the same drag family as Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones. And when we bump into each other, we were like, do you remember what it was like? It was actually really scary and London was very yeah. threatening. And, yeah. you know, and and you know, I was very close friends with another musician called Patrick Wolfe. And we it was just the constant threat of getting gay bashed, the, the constant threat of being misgendered or being beaten up. I mean, it was scary. Mm. And I grew up in a pre-gentrified London. So I remember yeah. what the club scene was like. I, you know, remember moving to East London and how scary it was when there were like no coffee shops. I mean, it's, it's virtually unrecognisable because London continues to change and that's a part of the life of a city. But yeah, I mean, my late teens and early 20s, I was full, fully into the, the club scene in between, you know, the queer club scene and the indie club scene. I DJed on the fetish scene. Uh, I can count almost 20 small venues, all gone, all gone. The yeah. the the crash of 2008 uh, just, you know, everybody just dispersed. People left London. Mm-hmm. They could mm-hmm. no longer afford to be here and... You know, so many of my networks were built through going out every night. And yeah. I, I I, mourn those physical spaces being taken away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to that in that there's certain venues over my lifetime that just mean so much. They're the centre of a scene. And, you know, when, when you don't have that anymore, sometimes it's because, sometimes I found it's because I kind of reached a different age group and it just doesn't quite feel the same anymore you know people have babies and everything and people stop going out and then you go go along and you're like oh I feel in a different place and you move on with your life and then sometimes it's that the world moves on like you're saying with like with the crash and venues are obliterated which is obviously a a big shame but these venues they hold these scenes in them and a lot of them are are being strung along by a shoe uh, a shoestring you know they are that vulnerable and so when when things like that happen that are kind of out of their control, they can just disappear. And yeah. Um, so I'm just, so I'm just thinking how, how fascinating it is, Bishy, the different influences that have come together. I mean, it's, it's actually so unique, isn't it? That you had that training as a chorister, but also that training in traditional classical Indian music, also learning, you know, classical Western piano, um, also then getting involved in the gay scene in London and the fetish scene and DJing and drag and all of that stuff. I mean, just coming together. And then also the stuff that you listened to growing up, like ABBA, just so many things coming together in your in you as a person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and just being a full-on music nerd, I would read every article, watch every documentary, rinse my local library, you know, all of my teenage jobs. I would go to the Notting Hill vinyl exchange and just buy everything cheaply. You know, I was completely committed from the word go. And um, I think that's kind of been why, you know, no, that's fully why I'm still here today, making it and doing it. Yeah. 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 There's a great loyalty there to it. There's a kind yeah. of yeah, yeah, that relationship. Yeah, and yeah. I and I I think I need to now answer the whole sort of music production side. As, yes, as please. Well. Yeah, 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 sure. Okay. <laughs> so um, I know I get so caught up in like having to set the scene of my own story that I sort of forget. Oh, yeah. to, to, to do to do all of the other stuff. Yeah. So I um, I, one of my first big commercial gigs was 
playing the after party for a film premiere. And with that money, I was able to buy myself a computer and buy myself Logic or was it Cubase? I can't remember which one it was, but it would have been Logic or Cubase that I started programming music on when I was sort of 15, 16. Now, in those days, there was no YouTube, you know, you had to actually have a lot of money to buy all of these plugins. You know, you, you needed to have one of those brains that understood how to read a manual. And I found it really difficult, you know, and yeah. I had, you know, I had almost sort of technophobia. I, I had constant fears of like not being good enough. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I started making music with in between my piano, my bass, the ukulele, different synths I had, my voice. Um, and then I progressed on to logic around the age of 20. But yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I've worked with different producers over the years who would always comment on how great my demos were and would Mm. always say to me, like, your stuff is really developed and it's so helpful. It's so useful to Mm. engineers and, and, and producers. And people would really comment on the fact that I already had this very unique sound, but I was comparing myself to legendary recordings where they would have spent like hundreds of thousands of pounds on like yeah. one album and stuff thinking, oh my God, this is just like being made in some, in some shitty bedroom in Shoreditch. And, you know, I was really down yeah. on myself. I was really, really down on myself. And then I met Tony Visconti in 2016 as a session musician for another album that he was working on. And I ended up, we ended up st- staying in a big stately home in Ireland for a couple of days and we ended up really really bonding and then you know since then we've become friends he's produced one of my most recent singles and I've worked on some of his solo material and he asked me actually in the studio that he recorded David Bowie's Black Star vocals in 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 the sofa that David (laughs) Bowie would sit and they'd edit the vocals wow said to me so how do you make music? And I said, well, I work on Logic. And he was like, good girl. I was like, I, I, I work in Logic and I have my sitar and my bass guitar and, you know, synths, pianos, loopers. And that's how I sort of write and create my music. And he was like, oh, so you're a producer. And I was like, oh, but I, you know, and he was like, no, no, that's what, like, that's what producers do. And I said, that I was really nervous about, you know, my technical abilities. I didn't feel this. He was like, oh, no, no, no. And he was like, what, all of this gear here? Like, like pointing to all of his Eventide stuff. He was like, oh, you just learn that as you go along. I was like, that you're, you're doing what a producer does. And so you need to talk about yourself and speak of yourself as a producer because mm. you're a producer. And he said to me, and you know exactly who you are. You know exactly what you want to sound like. You don't need anybody to tell you. No, he he was like, you don't need me to tell you, you know, and that was a really incredible moment for me because I just have carried uh, imposter syndrome, a form of imposter syndrome for no reason, for almost a couple of decades of being a professional musician, when in actual fact, I've always been a producer you know, I may have worked, um, you know, for my two uh, albums, there was definitely the producer credit goes elsewhere. I've got no problem with that. But ever since then, I just, you know, I love to co-produce with people. Um, And also I've started to produce my own stuff completely on my own and learn about the mixing process, learn about recording process, 
and learn even deeper about recording processes. And the more that I do it, the more appreciative I am of everything and everyone. And that has brought me so much happiness and so much confidence and joy in my life. That's great. Can can you maybe say a little bit more about that, Bishy? Because... Yeah, I'd I'd love to hear more about that. You know, how how has appreciating the people you work with more brought brought that happiness or that peace or I don't know how you describe it. I'd just love to hear more about that because I think that's interesting. Yeah, the more that I get into the actual sound quality of things, I'm just absolutely blown away. Um, you know, I was recently a judge for the Music Producers Guild the awards this year. And it was amazing to be on that panel, you know, obviously the only South Asian women on there, but also the fact that we really got to appreciate as a group the actual recording qualities of different records. So I was being asked to comment on people like Harry Styles and Dua Lipa and, you know, like, you know, people I never listened to. And you just think, oh, my God, from an audio perspective, it's absolutely extraordinary. So they had them on the commercial side and then they had, you know, more people on the indie side. And, you know, they had productions by Marta Salogni and, you know, and it was so great. Uh, I, I feel like my my role was to weird it up a little bit, you know, and but, but I actually sitting back and looking at the range of different music producers that we have in this country and feeling so excited and but and feeling so excited by the entire range of work and i feel that certain global streaming services you know music has become so commodified so it really kind of replanted the seed of like just loving music for music you know yeah yeah, absolutely. Because I think, like you say now, it's all become very, um, we're so aware of the algorithm. We're so aware of numbers and stats and followers and all those things. And um, and actually, I had a conversation with um, somebody about this recently. It's so overwhelming releasing music now because you just feel like this drop in the ocean. And coming back to those scenes and those venues, I think maybe 20 years ago, it didn't quite feel the same. I think when you release something and your scene kind of embraced it, that felt amazing. And you would have physical face-to-face conversations, you'd do gigs, you'd have people coming up and actually they'd have heard the whole album live because they were there at the gig. You know, totally different way of sharing your music. And now to release something, especially after the last year in the pandemic, you're like, well, I'm, I'm just this tiny little grain of sand amidst all these other artists and now I'm thinking about how many streams has got on Spotify how many followers do I have how many likes did that post get and actually you know none of it really means anything yeah it's nonsense yeah yeah I mean I started my label in 2007 and nobody to be an artist with your own label self-releasing you were seen as vain you were seen as a failure It was just really sniffy. And now the idea that you're an artist in charge of everything, you own your masters, you have a back catalogue. You know, people now talk to me like I'm the smartest person ever. The (laughs) idea that you make work which is inclusive and you make sure you have a very inclusive and very diverse team. It's been absolutely mad that I've always done that and always Mm. from 
was treated like such a freak and now being spoken to in through such revered terms it's like oh so everyone stick to your guns I've always been a drop in the ocean I've always been a drop in the ocean I've still managed to attract working with some of my heroes who are as follows you know Tony Visconti, Yoko Ono, Sean Ono Lennon, Jarvis Cocker, Richard Norris these are the people's and I've I don't I've never had traditional distribution I've never had traditional press in fact I'm mostly told that you know I'm it's too much I'm hard to position I can't do this I can't do that you know I've worked with Nico Mooley I've worked with the Brooklyn Youth Chorus you know I've worked with some incredible and exceptional people through being that drop in the ocean so it doesn't matter you can be a drop in the ocean and you can still be a diamond oh yeah I love that It's a great soundbite, but I, I I totally agree, Bishy, and I think it's something that um, we share is that we've both forged our own careers and we both started releasing our own music. And my first album that I released was 2010, and I know what you mean. Like at that time, I I often was very aware that some of the sniffiness was a fear, because obviously an industry where artists start releasing their own music means they're not needed anymore in the same way. So at the time, I was very aware there was that going on too. But similarly to you now, um, it's, it's, you know, anything from getting jobs to getting gigs, it's this thing that is celebrated that I am a DIY artist and I own all the masters and I therefore collect all of the royalties and all of those things. And, and like you, you know, there's been amazing things that have happened with my music, but because I forged my own path and because I didn't wait for somebody else to come along and do it all for me or, you know, take take over that that side of it and control that side of it for me um, because the opportunities just weren't coming my way. And so this is something I'd love to talk to you about because it's something that when we first started talking about you coming on the podcast, you, you said it really well and I'm probably going to totally butcher this. <laughs> but before I say it, I just want to kind of also say that you, you're, your albums um, are wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I love it. I mean, and also, I mean, I love Albion Voice. Thank you. Um, which was 2012. Yeah. But also all of the imagery on the albums are just absolutely like, so amazing they're, they're just great I love it I, I love the fact that we, I, I'd like to talk about this later but I love the fact you have such a strong imagery around your brand and your music and what you put out um I love the front cover of Albion Voice I think it's so clever and just so striking um so but I can really hear all of the influences that you're talking about I can hear that kind of um English almost like religious music in some of it. And then I can hear obviously the more traditional um, kind of almost folk song in some of Albion voice, um, but other songs too, other other albums too. Um, so all of those kind of influences that you mentioned before are coming together. Um, and then you have this this wonderful, very impressive discography that that is all has come from you and has been has made happen by you so I love that and that's absolutely the ethos of this podcast and everything that Girls Trudling Knobs is about um but what I would love to talk to you about is therefore looking at that it you know it, it looks very impressive and very successful but something you said when we were first getting to talk to each other was I've had lots of opportunities but not necessarily um the kind of momentum the industry momentum that 
that would have made all of this a lot easier. I've butchered what you said. You said it much yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. I'm paraphrasing. So, well, I mean, like, in essence, you're you're completely correct. So I continue to have bigger and bigger, bigger and better and more wonderful opportunities that come into my life. But I just don't have the industry backing to help it, you know, basically to distribute the music, you know, and that comes really down to the industry's attitude is that as a South Asian woman, as a brown woman, you know, you're either world music or what you do is kind of more R&B or, you know, like South Asian women and South Asian artists are seen in a very, very particular way. And that is actually, that is what structural racism is, you know? And, um, I, I mean, I've been told at various stages that, you know, we don't know how to sell it to white people. We don't know how to sell it to middle England. We don't know how to sell it to white hipsters. And this isn't something that just happened once. And I'm a bit of a snowflake and boohoo, get over yourself. Like this has been an underlying theme and an issue, which has, um, gone across all of my career. And yeah. And I think very much, you know, it's really in the past year or couple of years with, you know, movements like Black Lives Matter, that people are starting to really consider the perspectives of people of colour in a way that they've never considered us before. And very often when you try and say, look, this is how I've been treated, they'll be, they'll go, oh no, oh no. Yeah. Oh no, but you're fierce. And it's like, yeah, I know, but I'm also on my own, you know, completely, completely sidelined and, you know, because I don't look like I'm sidelined and I don't present like Mm. I'm sidelined. It's often very hard. Like there's a big sort of shortfall there, but yeah, when you look at the rosters of, you know, booking agents, publishers, record labels, you know, in my age group in the thirties, as a British South Asian woman with any kind of a platform, there's about five to 10 of us in a sea of thousands of people, thousands of people in the industry. There's about between five and 10 of us and we all know each other. So don't try it, you know, (laughs) you know, know. Um, but yeah, and it really affects, you know, how you're booked. It affects how you're promoted. It affects people wanting to get in with you because they look at you and they think, oh, well, I can't see the market or your market is the brown market. And that is what structural racism is. And it's really underpinned my life and people say it's changing and it's like, no, there's a conversation, yeah, but I don't see that much real change. And so what a lot of artists of color have to do is they have to set up their own platforms, their own foundations, Mm -hmm. their own labels. And, uh, you know, you're not really allowed to stop working. You have to kind of keep working um, yeah. And I, I, I know that, like, I, I really see that in, you know, there are some of my friends who are South Asian and they're, you know, considered household names and they can't stop in their profession because it's that easy for you to be sidelined. And yeah. that's never really talked about. I, I feel like now at least people are starting to listen. But prior to that, it's just absolutely being gaslit or what are you talking yeah. about? You blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, mm-hmm you can have lots of different musicians, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you know, they don't all get to jump off like the diving board 
at the same time or on the same level you know some people like some people like will be pitching from their front lawn and other people will be pitching an album from the top of Everest do you know what I mean yeah and these things never really get talked about in um, a transparent or a particularly fair way you know yeah I agree I I think that a lot of the time we we think just because we we have the diversity thing nailed or not really but we think maybe we do but we forget about the inclusion aspect that it's not just saying everyone's welcome it's also saying and when people come through the door or you know do try and do whatever it is they will have had different experiences they will have different lives and they will have different hopes and dreams and we need to meet them where they're at as much as possible because otherwise people are kept are kept away or are not given the opportunities and I think a lot of the time this is the same with women the that there's a lot of kind of rhetoric of oh but anyone can do this anyone can join this music technology course anyone can release an album anyone can go in a studio and do this this and this but when that that thing or that institution or that culture is not meeting you where you're at it actually makes it really really hard and sometimes impossible yeah you know yeah, well, I'm yeah. I'm on the board of the F list, and so the stats that Vic Bain put together in 2019, you know, only 20% of all working female artists are signed to a label. Only 16%, um, one six, are signed to a publishing deal. Or I think I think there was even a statistic that was put out through the F list for music social media, which it was 14% of all working female and female identifying composers are actually signed to a publishing deal and and that is exponentially worse if you're a woman of color and it's so shocking to people like like people you know like they think that like we're really talking about inclusivity and 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 diversity and like isn't this great but when it actually comes to implementing that change I don't really see that much being done you know yeah and I think that as someone who's in a minority in the music industry, your position, you're kind of assigned the responsibility to talk about it. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I should talk about it because it's important and it's really informed the trajectory of my career, you know, and, mm. and I know it's really upsetting. I, I was talking to my mother on the phone the other day and I was like, mom, if you're a woman of color and you're over the age of 30, you are fucked, you know, excuse my mm. language. And she was really upset. And, um, you know, she said, oh, but you, you know, you're so talented. You know, she's being really nice. And I was yeah. like, you know, it's nice. It's really nice to be seen. It's nice that you value me, but that doesn't escape the truth. And the truth is not pretty. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, it, and also I think sometimes it's, it's so frustrating when you say something like that to somebody and, I mean, your mum was being very nice, yeah. obviously, but sometimes people are not nice. Yeah. Sometimes people are, even if they don't mean to not be nice, they just come back with something so ignorant mm. and say something like, well, anyone can wake up tomorrow and be a musician if they want to, you know, and everyone has the same opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at those stats, you're like, and yet it's not happening. So clearly that attitude is not enough. Yeah. And we need to think harder. Yeah. And we need to, you know, like very popular phrase, but check our privilege and think, why am I where I am? Why have I had these opportunities? How could I help other people have those opportunities, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. And I I think it's really important that I I think, you know, if there's something that 
I try and hold in all of the work that I do with the podcast, but also with the, the online course I run for women, teaching them how to home record. Um, I'm, I've now set up scholarships where there's a scholarship for a woman. This year we had a scholarship for a woman of colour and a scholarship for a woman who has a disability or chronic illness. Next time I run it, I'll have two of them and I want to keep doubling those scholarships as the course grows. But it's just stuff like that, that thinking, well, you know, I need to meet people where they're at. Some people for different reasons will maybe see me and not feel that initial connection either because I'm white or they won't have the money to, you know, if they've had a chronic illness, may not have the money to to go and learn those skills or may not have the confidence or may not want to walk into a, a room with a bunch of guys, you know, yeah. and, and the course that I run could be a real, a real kind of window in. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I think, I think it's something that, for me, being ill has taught me this massively. For me, having a chronic illness and, uh, you know, for periods, it basically being a disability. Um, I've really learned that the hard way of of just how the minute you step out of the, that those normal demographics, everything becomes so much harder and it's invisible and it's systemic. And also you are always questioning whether you're just, maybe maybe I'm just mis- like reading this wrong. Maybe they didn't mean to say that. Maybe it's not about the fact that I did this and this. But one example I've got is um, I had time out because of being really ill. I hadn't made any music for a while. I was releasing another album, my last album. And I was sat down with someone who was a kind of A&R guy. And he was talking to me and he's saying, yeah, I mean, you've you've really, you know, you've got a very impressive career. In fact, that you've got a PhD now and you've done all these, you know, wonderful Sonic Arts gigs and you've got all these Spotify plays, millions of Spotify plays. Um, but, you know, you haven't really ever kind of tried to get in with the industry, have you? And and also looking at the last few years, you haven't really done anything yeah, oh. in the last few years. Um, so, you know, that's not very good. And I'm thinking... Why don't you just fucking ask me why I haven't done anything? How dare you presume it's because I'm this, you know, ditzy, ignorant woman. Yeah. Yeah, That's how it felt like he was talking to me. This ditzy, ignorant woman who desperately needed me, you, to come and tell me all the holes in my my CV and, you know, why basically it's the usual thing. They're trying to break Mm. you down so that you believe that you need them. It's a horrible kind of... um, like quite toxic i think the industry still has quite a toxic yeah. way of treating artists sometimes mm. not all the time but sometimes and i just thought that is so incredibly ignorant of you yeah. to just presume but but that's the kind of thing you deal with when you're not you're not fitting all the normal yeah um demographics you're not hitting all the right notes because things have happened in your life or you happen to not be white and therefore people don't immediately think they can sell you yeah or because you're a woman and people don't take your skills seriously, yeah. or you you just have t- massive technophobia because you've been socialised to think that you can't work these things out. Yeah, the yeah. list could go on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, absolutely. But you know, I speak to my you know like my black girlfriends, and I know that it's really against them. Like the darker skin coloured they are, yeah. the less that people want to work with them because. A lot of the black artists who are being sold are, you know, that the, 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 like skin privilege is a real thing, you know. And so yeah. I've been very made very aware of that. But what I think is incredible about what you're saying is that, you know, you are taking all of this responsibility and you are you are doing yeah. that. Wouldn't that be amazing if like the big majors and the big radio stations and they actually started to not only take check their privilege and 
um, you know, take responsibility for the way things are, but to actually invest in some of that talent. And, you know, like then we'd be really cooking on gas. Like my entire career today is really to do with the artists, the DJs, you know, the talent, you know, the cultural bookers who value me and see me for what I am. I'm here today because other artists believe in me. So if the industry could just follow, behave like the artists and behave like the fans could, then we'd be cooking on gas, you know. Yeah. But and I mean, I mean, I mean, like people look at what I do and they're blown away by, they're literally blown away by how accomplished I am. But that's seen to be, that's held against me rather than, you know, if I was a man, mm. I'd be promoted or I'd get, I'd get, you yes. know, I get, you know, like, I don't know how filthy I can be, but you know, I'd, Go, I'd be filthy. It's yeah. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I was a guy, you'd give me a pay rise and a fucking blowjob, yeah. you know, and I've, I've yeah. said that out and it's really made people laugh, but it's so true. <laughs> So true. Where yeah, is it? I, I agree. You know, and and I've been in my life. It's always like you're doing too much. You know, there are too many things going on. You're doing too much. You're always busy. You're relentless, and it's not. You know, it's it's men and women who say that. And you're like, but you would never say this to a man. Number one, mm-hmm. and number mm-hmm. two, you know, if I was not a woman of color, then how I would have to conduct myself would be different, you know, and, mm. and, and actually I, I do think that more women have to work in the way where you have like five projects on at the same time, yeah. just because of the way that things are kind of structured. And it's, it's, it's also kind of pertains to the world of work as we know it now. Um, mm. but yeah, I'm, I've had to really work through all of that. And simultaneously you take up such little space in your profession, but you're told you're too much. And mm. it's a way in which we condition and control women, I think. Mm. I think that's so, I would love to talk more about, you know, people telling you that you're busy. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> I think that, The bane um, of my life. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I get this all the time as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, the whole, basically ever since I left uni, really, um, and I have been busy, I have been busy, but, it's um for me it's felt I, I can very much relate to what you're saying. Obviously I I'm white, so it's different. But at the same time I, I totally have had that experience of just having to spin so many plates um in order to get funding, in order to um, you know, keep building my career. Because I haven't had people come along and say, I'll sign you to a record label and you'll get a stip- a retainer for three years or whatever. This just hasn't happened. I know it happens to some women, but like you're saying, only 20% of women who are musicians are signed. So there we go. So just for various reasons, I have had to keep lots of plates spinning and partly also so that I've had enough money to live, but also that I've been able to do the projects I really care about too, um, like doing a PhD and releasing my music at the same time. Which is incredible. Could, yeah. Which is incredible and, and bonkers, but also... That like I think I told you before when we spoke, it was that choice. I mean, I love the PhD that I did, and I and I love working with sound, and I still do. But it having to do both of those things, two things at the same time, not everyone was doing that in my department at university, you know, and not everyone released four albums during also doing a PhD, and it pretty much broke me. But I but I understand what you're saying. I think 
what so where do you because I struggle with being told I'm busy too because on the one hand I feel like well I'm really proud of all the things that I'm doing and I'm really proud of the fact that especially for me in particular despite being ill for so long I've now I'm now building this new life and this whole new kind of um, machine almost like this trailblazing machine of the podcast and teaching women how to record um and the, similarly with you with everything that you've done you must be incredibly proud but then when somebody says you're busy for me sometimes it feels sometimes it feels like it might be coming from a place where they're intimidated by it yeah well I mean can you relate to that completely and I think that people are allowed to be intimidated and they're allowed to dislike they're, they're allowed to disapprove but for me, I think culturally, we never say this about men. We only mm-hmm. say this about women, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, you're very busy, aren't you? And, and it's almost it's almost like the second that somebody has expressed it like that. I just back. I know I can't be friends or I just can't work with that mm. person because, yeah. you know, that if if somebody told me about interesting things that they were doing, I'd go, oh, really? Oh, God, you know, like, I'd love to know more. Tell me more. You know, I'm just curious. But that you know it's it it's almost like the person telling me that i'm busy they've already signaled that we it's we can't go forward <laughs> yeah yeah cuz is it like they're kind of saying oh you've taken on too much um, for yourself what well, i don't know quite how to distill it but it is very passive aggressive it's really passive yeah. aggressive and you know i think i think we're going to get onto my imagery but yeah passive aggr- yeah. passive aggression over who i am and what i present has been you know a massive a massive theme in my life and uh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's interesting okay well well therefore let's let's get into that then bishy yeah <laughs> <laughs> um where else are you feeling that passive aggressive response from people well I think definitely in the way that I present um which you know I'm hyper femme um I've had a a long-standing relationship with the British fashion press Uh, I've worked with an Indian designer called Manisha Aurora the first Indian to ever um show their work on the official Paris catwalk schedule I've been photographed by the likes of Nick Knight and Wolfgang Tillmans. And I've been in, you know, Indian, Italian, British and American and Japanese Vogue. And so I, which to me is just, just having lots of fun, having lots and lots and lots of fun and reveling in it and reveling. I almost see it as an extension of performance work, you know, Mm. And definitely, yeah, very much being written off when I was younger for being fashion, for being superficial, despite the fact that I played an array of instruments and wrote and produced and programmed very much just written off. And people take one look at me and they write me off or they talk to me like I'm completely stupid and or I'm written off because of some of the press opportunities I've had that, you know, I'm this champagne quaffing star fucker and it the the comments come even in the last week you know wow somebody made in a professional meeting some comment about my celebrity connections and and it's like but you're talking about these people like they're people that I do lines with in some you know fancy hotel like these are my friends and they're established work colleagues and, and we really respect each other like 
this isn't, I'm not in the Met Bar in the 90s or I'm not at the Grouch Show or like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, and, and, and people just sort of, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they keep having these little kernels, you know, that they can't seem to, that, you know, I've been become very aware of the story which is projected onto me and what my own mm. life experience is. But that projection is very, very strong onto me. Mm. That's so, I mean, it's so interesting. And I know that I'm sure that this also happens on social media as well, you know, and, and, the, and the problem is as well is that so much of music has become even more visual because of social media, because obviously that's how we share everything. Um, I mean, when I, whenever I was saying to you, I was, it's really surprising to me, maybe naively of me, that people would have a reaction to you like that. Because when I've seen your photos and your album artwork and everything, and the and the fashion photos you've done as well, I just think they're wonderful. Thank you. I love them. <laughs> yeah, I love them, and I and I love the fact that you just have a really strong sense of your 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 kind of visual the visual side of yourself as an artist. And I, I love that, you know, I, and it's something that I definitely think the older I get, the more I want to develop that. Um, because I don't think, you know, now I've got into my 30s, I don't really give much of a fuck really about looking pretty or looking marketable. I want to sometimes look grotesque. I want to sometimes look scary. I want to sometimes look, you know, various things because I just feel more free now to play with my identity visually. Um, I don't know, is that something that you can relate to? Oh, absolutely. But I think from the word go, and I think my background in queer club spaces and coming up through those spaces, that's what gave me the confidence. You know, you, uh, everybody treated themselves and their bodies like they were a work of art. And mm. that's how, I, that's where I found my confidence. And I think that that confidence in terms of the producers and the mixers and the mastering people that I have worked with, um, I've always had an amazing time with all of the producers that I've worked with because they sensed that confidence. They they loved who I was and what I represented, like it really spoke to them. So as much as it's brought me a lot of very passive aggressive, very combative behavior, the, the flip side of that is it will attract the people that you really need in your life. And, you know, obviously yeah. growing up being a fan of people like, York and Grace Jones and David Bowie and Kraftwerk you know these were people who were world creators they created an entire world it wasn't just an album it was an ethos there was an ideology there was a visual language there was a stage presentation it ran through their videos they were these completely 360 artists yeah and that's always something that I've responded to mm. oh yeah absolutely well I can definitely see that in your work for sure um, well, maybe it would be really interesting to know a little bit about um, what you're doing with your practice moving forward and, you know, how that might be changing or what you want to develop. Yeah, sure. So I've got a new album coming out called Let My Country Awake, which I've co-produced with Jeff Cook, who's a composer and producer based in Brooklyn. Uh, I am creating something new for Coventry City of Culture. So some, ele oh, wow. some electronic folk work, which I'm really, really <sighs> excited about. 
I am writing for a choir who are based in Whitechapel. They're a school in Whitechapel. And that's going to be a choral work, which I'm really looking forward to writing. And I've got an ambient dance track out at on June the 18th called Axis Mundi, which I produced out of my production skills in lockdown. And just really throwing myself into all of the different ranges of music that I'm involved in. Um, I'm also helping to develop um, a VR live streaming platform for musicians in a, um, a company called Volta. So I've been actually writing code so that, you know, the Ableton project talks to the VR live streaming project and just really, really into that. And, you know, just developing my skills as a composer and producer and you know, I'd love to get into things like film writing. I'm definitely, things are, you know, people are whispering in that world, but whether, you know, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested. Mm. I'd be really into that happening. And it seems that that world is calling, but we shall see. We shall see. Mm. Wonderful. And it feels like you have a real enthusiasm for technology in general, not just music, like creative technology. Um, which obviously must be why which has come about. Um, but can you tell me what was the thinking behind that? How does that feed into your, you know, your background and your interests? And sure, well, yeah. which was really born out of what's underlined my career, which is lots of opportunities, very little backing, and being mm. of the first generation to experience the internet and social media. I understand how how you use the internet and social media to basically have a career. And so I took my training from queer club spaces and from understanding the power of scenes, you know, from my childhood, understanding artist power, artists rising together and supporting one another. And that's what really formed which I kept going around the world when I was touring Albion Voice, realizing that there were these polymath women who were using technology in these really radical ways um, who were also musicians, also performers, and they were being sidelined and they weren't being really invited onto festival lineups and what have you. And to, you know, to be fair, that's still not really that great. You know, there's, yeah. there's awareness of the issue, but it's not really that. It's not mm -hmm. as great as people think it is. And that's why I set up Witch, and it was a celebration of this polymath woman and I set it up in 2016 and launched the podcast last year with guests like Anna Meredith, Gazelle Twin, Hannah Peel, and we've got our digital festival, which is going to be headlined by Laurie Anderson, and I'm absolutely thrilled. Yeah, it's wonderful. The podcast is fantastic, so anyone listening should go and check it out. And the the festival just looks wonderful. And and it's the was the first festival 2013. No, am I right in thinking? The first festival was in 2018. Oh, 2018. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So is this the third or the fourth one? This is actually the second one. We were supposed to have the, we were supposed to have one last year. It got shifted by the pandemic, as all of our yeah. plans got shifted. So this is yeah. the second festival, and. It's been an amazing time for everybody to reflect where we are. You know, the the ninth is hosted by Anna Matronic and she's talking about AI and gender. And, you know, it's called The Future is Fluid, question mark, which I think is a really beautiful mm. title. Mm. Nimone will be leading a panel about well-being in electronic music. 
and I'll be leading the conversation on the 11th with Laurie Anderson and Hannah Peel and Kayla Painter. And that's all about intergenerational sharing and talking about the position of technology and creativity within our lives and where we think things might be going and how things are changing as global lockdowns are starting to lift. You know, where are we Mm. and how are we feeling? Great. Well, I cannot wait. I'm very, very um, up for all of that. So that sounds great, Bishy. Um, Well, you know, let's wrap it up soon, but maybe just as a final thought, um, we've covered a lot and we've learned so much about what has been already an incredible career and an incredible lifetime <laughs> that you've shared with us. So thank you so much for being so generous and, and sharing all of that here. But what I'd love to ask is for anyone listening, what advice do you have to the women and the girls and even the men and, you know, everything in between? Yeah. What, what's your what's your advice for, for those artists and those musicians? Keep creative, keep making music, keep making your art, whether that's recording, engineering, mixing, composition, sound design, um, even if it's painting or knitting, you know, keep creating uh, because your creativity will keep yielding whatever opportunities, whatever gifts come your way. It will come directly from your creativity and, you know, don't, steer away from comparisonitis no two stories are the same no two lives are the same um i that's very hard in the age of social media and everybody being addicted to their phones and looking at what seems like people constantly achieving things um also understand that whatever looks like picture perfect um that there's often a much more complex story going on behind the scenes And if you want to choose to share that, then that's great. But I'm also very private. I don't say a lot of things. Um, You know, you've got to work out what makes you happy and what makes you tick and assess things practically. And there you go. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah, great advice. Thank you. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Bishy. It's been really, really fascinating. And and I'm sure that everyone listening has loved it too. I really hope so. Thank you so much, Isabel. This has been a really wonderful interview. You are an amazing interviewer. Thank you. Okay, I think it's fair to say that was one of the best conversations we've had on the podcast ever, right? I really appreciated how honest and candid Bishy was about not just all the exciting things she's done in her life, but the challenges she's faced too, and the sheer amount of grit and determination it's taken to keep building a career as an artist. I'm also really grateful that we discussed how Bishy's race, age and physical appearance has affected how strangers, colleagues and the industry have reacted to her as well. It's an important reminder that we need to keep having conversations like this, but we also need to take tangible action so that real change happens moving forward. I urge you to check out all of Bishy's fabulous music, including the fierce album covers and fashion photographs we mentioned. Just go to bishy.co.uk, that's bishy.co.uk, to find out more. I also urge you to grab your ticket for the Witch Festival coming up from June the 9th to the 11th. It's all online so you don't even have to leave your living room and the programme is quite literally amazing. I'll certainly be there every night watching from my sofa, maybe with a cheeky glass of red in my hand. You can grab your tickets from the link in the show notes. 
Now, next week, I'm joined by composer, producer and performer, Caro C, who will be sharing all about her new album, Electronic Mountain. Caro is a woman who is serious about the craft of making and producing music, but didn't have a conventional route in like so many others in the field. If you've ever felt less than because you don't have a music degree yet, Caro's story shows that true musicianship is about an attitude, not a narrow form of education or opportunities. Oh, and she also happens to have founded the fantastic Dealer Derbyshire Day and was a researcher on the now cult hit documentary Sisters with Transistors. So you do not want to miss our conversation all about that and more. But till then, take care and I'll catch you in the next episode. Girls Twiddling Knobs is hosted and produced by me, Isabel Anderson, with production support from Francesca O'Connor and is a female DIY musician production. So, how do you like that episode, dear listener? If you loved it, and you know someone else who would love it too, be a good friend and share it with them. Go on, spread the girls' twiddling knobs love.